Hey everyone, David Kern here. Welcome to Close Reads. Before we get into the show today with our special guests, Karen Swallow Pryor and Joshua Gibbs, who are joining Heidi White and I for our discussion of Frankenstein, I wanted to remind you about how you can join the conversation. Head over to Facebook, search for Close Reads in that search bar, and you can join the conversation over on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. And over on Instagram, you can follow us at Close Reads Podcasts. We also have our newsletter, which is closereads.substack.com. And we have bonus episodes and some sweet show swag over at patreon.com slash close reads, where we are currently discussing crime and punishment a little bit at a time. The Close Reads audience is the greatest audience in the podcast world, and we're thankful you've taken the time to, to uh, be a part of it. So thanks for that. Thanks for listening. And with that, here is today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern. I am joined by my friends Heidi White. I almost said Tim McIntosh, but it's Josh Gibbs. I just old habits die hard. And Karen Swallow Pryor. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Thanks for being here. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thank you. We're here to discuss Frankenstein. We're going to be discussing what for most of you will be uh, volume two, chapters one through five. Some of you, if you have the edition like mine, will be uh, not so clear. <laughs> and you may have to do a little digging to, to make the math all work, match up. But I was thinking that just to clarify where we are, uh, it might be a good idea to summarize what happened in these five chapters. Karen, would you be willing to do that for us just to make sure that we're all, you know, all, all of us here and then also the listeners are kind of on the same page of what we're discussing this week? Would you be, would you be up for that for me? Oh, sure, sure. I'll stumble through this. So um, at the end of volume one, basically, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, we have uh, the, well, this, it's basically the story of Dr. Frankenstein meeting with his creature. Remember that this uh, it's a story within a story. So we have letters and then we have, we have um, Dr. Frankenstein telling Robert Walton his narrative. And then we, in volume two, when Dr. Frankenstein meets, and I keep saying Dr. Frankenstein just because, just to, because so many people will confuse him with the monster, especially if they are reading it for the first time or haven't read it and are just listening in. Um, he meets with the monster. So he's hearing now uh, and we're hearing through him the monster's tale of um, of after after the murder. What you know, how he got to that point, how he came to learn uh, language and interact with people, and then uh, let's see. I know because I've reread the whole thing, so I want to make sure I don't go too far ahead. The <laughs> ending of the reading is. Okay, yeah. So we it, we are we end in the middle of what I call. I think I talked about this the first um, the first episode. If we see if we see this as a frame narrative, uh, a frame around a frame around a frame, the very center story is the story of this family of cottagers, the Delaceys. <laughs> And so we uh, we actually end the reading for today, sort of in the middle of that story, within the story, within the story. Yeah, I was thinking when uh, breaking up the reading for the different episodes, where you know I was trying to figure out where the perfect place to end it, and I kind of realized I think in the middle of that story maybe isn't the perfect place, but you know you, eh. <laughs> the show must go on, so to speak. Um, you got to make it work for the number of episodes. But we got some we got a question from a listener, two questions actually, that I want to uh, use as kind of an entryway into the, the reading for this week. And then um, we'll talk about when Frankenstein 
meets his creation uh, after that. Josh, at the end of the last episode, you brought up a term, uh, autodidact. And you said that was something that people should be looking out for. And that subject, that topic is related to one of these questions from a listener named Sam. And he points out that he had, um, he had a bit of a hard time with the, the quality of the language that Frankenstein's monster spoke. Um, he said that that was a big surprise for him. And he wondered if that surprised any of us when we first read it. And would this have been seen as normal by Shelley's original readers? And he wants to know what, he, what we think the impact of the effect of, of Frankenstein's ability to speak English is. And I think that has a lot to do with this concept of autodidacticism and the, the monster teaching himself. And so I want to turn that over to you, since you brought up the term. You know, you, you you mentioned it first. We'll give you the first shot to to respond to this. So let's let's see if we can address his question and then get into that into that you know into that subject matter. Is that something that surprised you? So the question is about the monster's eloquence. Yeah, he says the biggest surprise for me was that Frankenstein's mon- monster spoke perfect English or whatever language Victor and his family spoke in Geneva. So did this surprise any of you when you read it? And would this have been seen as normal by Shelley's original readers? And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when at first you, you do kind of think, wait, how did this monster learn how to speak this? And so then that, that takes us into this subject of autodidacticism and him being able to teach himself. So, so for you, it seems like this is an important subject matter. Is it a, is it a subject matter that surprised you when you first read it? Uh, personally, yeah. And I think that the, that the intent there is to surprise the reader with how eloquent this ugly, intimidating child is. Uh, the appearance of the monster and the person of the monster are two entirely different things. And Mary Shelley wants to create as high a contrast there as possible. The uglier the monster is, the more surprising it is that, uh, that he can speak um, so beautifully and that he seems to take such care in representing himself so precisely as well. Hmm. Do you think that Shelley is... is uh, Maybe this term wouldn't have been used at the time, but do you think that she was trying to sort of avoid, like actively avoid any sort of realism there? Because I think modern readers often who are used to reading what we might call realism would say, well, that doesn't, it doesn't, this logically doesn't all add up. How did the monster, I mean, even if he spent, you know, a whole winter in a cave watching people speak a language, you know, he, the, he still has a degree of eloquence that is not in keeping with what we would call realism. So do you think uh, she's avoiding that or she just the concept wouldn't have been something that she was working with? Someone else wanted to take that one. Yeah, I, I actually wanted to address this. Um, I, I was thinking of in, in the last episode, but it, it's certainly appropriate to bring it up here. Um, as I, Again, as I was rereading this and thinking about this podcast and what I'll be writing about this book, it's really important to understand this novel as myth, not as realism. I mean, it's, it, it's you know the modern a modern prometheus i mean that is it is a myth um and to read it as i mean it's a delightful wonderful tale on the literal surface on the narrative surface it's wonderful hmm. but 
it's not as you said, David. It's not meant to be realism. Uh, it's much more mythical. And so I think when we come up against those things that are kind of um, unbelievable, like the monster's eloquence, uh, we can think about it that way. But I love I love what Josh said too, because we tend, especially in the modern age, to think of monsters in certain ways that hmm. Shelley might not even have thought about a hmm. monster in those ways. Um, so the, I want to say one other thing about that. So, so myth for one, and I'll just try to throw in a pop culture reference there. Uh, one of my favorite films, which I found out, you know, a while ago is, is, should be an embarrassing thing for someone who's like a literary type like me, but one of my favorite <laughs> films is uh, crash. Um, hmm. You know, it's like a 1999 or 2000 film about race and prejudice and so forth. And I remember encountering one of the biggest uh, criticisms of it was how it's so not realistic. And my response has always been, well, Crash is meant to be viewed and understood as like a myth, right? It's not a realistic film. Like, oh, like all these coincidences would happen. Um, And so I... So that that's one way of understanding a story, especially this story. But when Josh was talking about the um, d- the difference between um, the monster's uh, person and his appearance, I was just that was just necessarily moving and touching. And I'm again just kind of bring in some realistic elements. I do think we tend to in modern society. Um, well, and even in even in medieval society, maybe we we see an appearance and we we think that the outside matches the inside. And I I, I think about a person um, from years ago when my husband and I were a young married couple and going to church, and one of our members um, had cerebral palsy and he was you know just extremely crippled. Um, and we would take him around and carry him around in his wheelchair or bodily and take him to all the places that we could. That man was so brilliant and so articulate, even though mm. it was so, it took us a long, long time to understand what he was saying. Um, mm. And I'll just never, that was just a very formative experience uh, in my life to encounter a person who was brilliant and smart and funny and yet had trouble communicating and being understood and would automatically be assumed to be something else or be some other way just because of how he looked. And so I think this is a really, really powerful thing that I hadn't really thought about um, in terms of the the monster in this story. And I'm going to keep thinking about it and we'll stop now. But thanks for bringing, <laughs> thanks for bringing this up. It's a really important idea. Josh, did you, were you going to say something? No, I was just enjoying listening to Karen talk. Okay, okay. I, I was thinking about Phew. this. Uh, <laughs> I was thinking about this last night because, um, although not quite in the way that the two of you put it, but I was thinking about how even by the creator himself, this person, this 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 character is so misunderstood and seen just for what it is on the surface. You know, the first time. We, we talked about the scene last week where he's he's lying in his bed and he wakes up and the monster, the, the, the creature is standing there and it freaks him out and he jumps and he runs away and he wants nothing to do with, with it. And so even the, the, the person who, who invented, who created the character, uh, who, you know, as Josh said last week, wanted all the responsibility for that act of creation, he, even he rejects the creature that he created only for what he sees on the surface. Is that something that, you use Josh or, or even Karen or Heidi as you're talking to other people. I mean, is that a, is, you know, sometimes with stories that are kind of myth like, or just, you know, straight up myth, the, uh, well, I was going to say the, the, the concept of relevance is kind of overrated, but, but like, you know, getting, getting, 
getting a, a, an attachment or building a bridge to your students, is that something that you feel like you need to do? And this is an entryway that you can do that for a book that might seem old fashioned to people? Because everybody sort of can get at that sort of concept, that, that sense of, you know, not wanting to be judged just for maybe what you, you know, seem to be on the surface. And I was wondering if that's an, if that's a, you know, is that a, is that a, um, an entryway for people that you you found for this book, because it seems like so many people when, when you read reviews of this book or you come across even conversation on the Facebook group, so many people gravitate towards that concept with this book. So it seems like there's something universal about that. Yes, absolutely. I think that the question of who is the monster and what are monstrous qualities, what would make a creature. Uh, whether a human creature or the monster, what what makes him a monster? What defines monstrous? And I think that the this goes back to the earlier topic of conversation, which is, as Josh said, just this profound division between what the monster looks like and what the monster talks like and how the monster is formed uh, internally in this section that we're reading. Uh, and the objective correlative to the internal world of the monster is the way that he speaks, his language. And um, because at this point... We have, that, that's how you know somebody, right? How they look, how they act, and how they talk. Those are, those, those are kind of the three entrance points to human interaction. Um, and so that we see three disparate elements of, in the monster. We see this like eloquent, um, beautiful mastery of language far above anybody else in the novel. Um, and we also see even, even his creator, right? He far surpasses his creator in eloquence. Uh, we also see that he's done a terrible thing. He's murdered a child and that his appearance is ugly and, uh, and, and terrifying to people. Uh, they respond with disgust and with fear. And so you have these three very disparate elements and and the monster's trying and we see in this section the monster is begging his creator to help him resolve that and to bring harmony to that chaos uh and and as you pointed out david the creator responds with rejection and so there's another division for the monster he has no father he has no mother he cannot connect with his creator and his source of origin which again creates even more profound division uh, for this already divided creature and that's reflected in all the other characters uh, in the novel so well that takes us back to this this idea of you know the monster recognizes he he recognizes the need to be able to communicate. He recognizes even the beauty of the sounds of language and things like that. And so he has this motivation, this, this inner drive to, to learn to interact with people the way that the people at the cottage, the, the, the French family are. So that brings us back to this notion of you know, how, how he learns that, uh, which is you know, what I, why I originally brought up the question of, of, of the language. And Josh, you, you, have, you mentioned that we need to look out for this this notion of autodidacticism. And what is it about the way that he, this monster particularly learns and teaches himself that is, is so important to you and, and, and perhaps even moving to you? Um, well, I don't know that we've quite come to it yet with, um, with the end of five. Um, 
He hasn't quite finished his story when we, at the end of that chapter. That's right. It's, it's the moment, and it might be coming up here. Um, in fact, yeah. Should we hold off till next week? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's really more the moment that the monster... Although, to be honest now, I'm wondering if this is included in both versions. Uh, it's the moment that the monster discovers the portmanteau of books that contains... Paradise Lost, uh, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and uh, Plutarch's Wives, which I don't think that we encountered this week. Perhaps it's coming up. Um, but, the, you know, there is a sense in which the monster is in autodidact, in a, in a pale sort of way, uh, in his observations of the De Lacy family and... Um, all the things that he recognizes about what make a life good in watching their good lives. That's a kind of autodidacticism, I suppose. But when I think of the term, I, I think of a person finding a small library of books, reading them all and slowly coming to terms with what they mean. I mean, that's, that was, that's really more of what Mary Shelley's education would have been like. Um, and it's the, what uh, that kind of self-education is what a lot of, 18th century intellectuals. Well, it's what Frankenstein, Frankenstein's education was. The first first episode, we talked about that a lot. That's right. It's what in uh, Robert Walton. These are all, you know, largely self-taught people. Um, but when the monster encounters those books, um, we get a rather fascinating depiction of people or a person reading an old book and discovering his own life contained in something far older and far other than himself. And a lot of what the monster ultimately wants is derived from comparing the good life as it's depicted in classic literature with his own life and figuring out what's missing. Uh, and I, I think that that's kind of what autodidacticism is for a lot of people. It's getting a vision of virtue, holding yourself up to the light of that virtue and figuring out what you need to do to, to get from where you are to where you want to be. Hmm. Do you think that his observations of the family prepare him to receive that from those books? Yeah, I, I would say that's fair. Yeah. I wonder if that's true of everybody now that I think about it. <laughs> <laughs> or is it the other way around? Does it just, is it just the sort of, is it just a big, figure eight all the time like it's a big cyclical well, interaction between those two things no because um i do think that uh that that classic literature that he encounters by accident only makes sense after he's got a good bit of experience of the natural world and a number of observations of human nature that he's made on his own so uh, you know in that way and i forget who the you know it might be in it might be from a, a John Senior book. It might be in Reclaiming one of John Senior's books, where he comments that classic literature is not worth anything to people who have no experience of Mother Nature and human nature. And that reading classic literature depends upon a certain foundation of experience with the world that a lot of modern people simply don't have because their lives are lived only virtually. Um, so I think that, that all of the monsters ramblings in the woods and his observations of the De Lacy family 
create a base of knowledge of what human beings are, what they look like, how they interact with one another, so that, you know, Paradise Lost and Plutarch make sense to him. And so there is a, there is a relationship there between life lived and life observed, maybe. So I'm kicking around this theory, and you will be my first public test of this. Um, and I see, I, I see it in Frankenstein, and you can tell me your thoughts on this, that the, because I, I think I said in an earlier podcast that you can read this book. I mean, there's so many ways to read this book, um, but you can read it as a long treatise on education. You really can, especially particularly as we get to this middle, to the heart of the book uh, right now. And I have this theory that there's kind of these two strands of, of education. And one is formation, uh, like the blank slate idea, which is what we spend a lot of time talking about as teachers, right? We have these kids and, and we, we tell them what to think and how to think and all the things that we talk about um, and give them content and form for that. And, and that forms us, that forms the soul. And one of the goals of Christian classical education is, is, is to... Uh, channel that to the formation of the soul as well as the mind. Uh, but another purpose of education is restoration, is healing. And, and that's, I, I know the four of us encounter this all the time. People who say, I, was, I wasn't properly educated. I didn't receive this education that I'm trying to give to my students or my children or whoever. What do I do about that? Um, because I wasn't formed that way. But formation is not the only purpose of an education. There's also reformation. There's also, if we've been malformed or deformed or unformed, there's also the reforming aspect of, of um, an education. And that's the healing part. That's the part that kind of knits us back together um, where we've been broken. And and I, I think Frankenstein addresses that. And this is why I see Mary Shelley in this book everywhere. And Karen, you pointed out that biographically, like it's so important to know about Mary Shelley um, in a way that's not always true of the great novels, but she's so present in it mm -hmm. uh, because this was her experience and, and she puts it in her monster, which I think is fascinating that, that we see him formed by the way that he educates himself and then we also see where he's unformed and deformed and malformed because he wasn't loved. And there was no, there, that, and so he missed out on that. And, and what he's asking for from his creator in this section is, will you please heal me? Will you please reform me? Will you please give me what I did not receive? And the answer is no. And then we later see the consequences of that. But right now we're just seeing the appeal. All of this whole central section, it is a story within a story. It's fascinating in, in, in the form of the novel, but at, in the content of it, at the heart of it, is an appeal to his creator to love him by telling him his story. So in a way, it's not just a book about creation, but self-creation self is the idea that he's reforming mm -hmm. himself or he's looking for someone to reform him. Yeah, that you can't, you can't, I mean, the conclusion seems to be you can't educate yourself to virtue in a vacuum without any meaningful connection with other creatures. Hmm. So maybe re creation and recreation. Yeah. Yeah. 
it seems like you write about this all the time, Karen. <laughs> like <laughs> what? <laughs> write about what? <laughs> Which <laughs> the, the 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 way that you know uh, the recreation part of it, perhaps. Mm. I mean, I think about your books that are both, you know, the the introductions to your annotated versions. Um, I'm, I'm assuming you're going to talk about this some in this Frankenstein uh, introduction and in your notes, but uh, you know, especially in a book like On Reading Well. It seems like this is a this this kind of thing is is one of the things that you're both celebrating and trying to articulate how people can go about doing that. So is is that some, one of the reasons? I mean, is that why you have a connection with this book? Do you think, like, on a personal level? Yeah, that's that's a good question. I, I think. Um, why do I have a, a connection to this book on on a personal level? Um, and I think I talked about this a little bit in the first podcast. Um, it's it's again because because I'm such an anti-romantic, or at least I like to think I am. I think I am. Um, <laughs> but the and and this novel is romantic, but also we see Shelley pushing against it in so many ways. Um, and we but we see so many roots of what what we're dealing with now um, in you know whatever it, if we want to call it post-modernity. Um, this idea of telling our stories, right? Because the idea of telling our stories and understanding ourselves through stories and through language, as we've talked about here, is both a a formative and reformative experience, right? Because there's some sense in which we feel like we, you know, have not, you know, our stories have been begun and told for us, yet we are telling and retelling them in such a way that it has... Uh, reforming um, component to it, and uh, just to go back to the to the language thing, there was a, a key uh, line by the monster in chapter um, two of volume two, uh, where he again he's talking with Doctor Frankenstein, uh, his creator, and he's it's just a you know a short plea to him among many others where he says, "Listen to my tale." Um, I mean that that is an echo of um the rhyme of the ancient mariner by Coleridge there are many echoes of that work uh here but those you know those four words listen to my tale that's in a, in a way that is the theme of the entire novel everyone who is speaking in this novel whether you know from Walton to Frankenstein to the monster um to uh even the de Lacy's um are begging, listen to my tale. And there's something about making the self and understanding the self and recreating the self through the telling of the tale and through someone else listening to it. Just like the Mariner was destined to do um, in Coleridge's poem. Hmm. Karen's uh, comments are rather fascinating. Uh, It's so true that listen to my tale is a is a continual plea and it sets in high relief one of the central uh, thematic spiritual problems of uh, of a lot of the relationships in the story which is that no one ever asks anyone any difficult questions no one wants to pry um so uh alphonse up until this point but for the rest of the novel as well will never say to his son, why don't you tell me what's really going on? Mm. He's always evading this issue. And when Victor gets in trouble, 
after he takes a long trip and, and all that, his father comes to pick him up, never asks him what he was doing. Um, and the same is true uh, for Victor's relationship with Henry. Uh, when Henry shows up in Ingolstadt and finds his friend on a point of madness, there's never a moment where there's a real conversation where Victor tells him what he's been doing. And so uh, it's true that the, that the book emerges as a series of, of interlocking stories. And yet we often find in these stories that no one has been honest or demanded honesty of anyone else. And so the book almost seems as though Frankenstein, the novel, is the truth finally coming out that no one was willing to tell or willing to require other people to tell for a lifetime. And then, you know, in the novel, it all finally is revealed. It's almost like they can't help finally spilling the beans. Yes. In all these different layers. I think what Josh is saying is brilliant because, again, and that goes back to the the uh, the capacity for language from the monster because he is in a sense the keeper of all the stories the only one who can communicate and yet the only one nobody will listen to uh, at all ever you know um, and and validate his story um, except mm-hmm. the blind man which we're oh sorry I gave away something but there's whoops. Um, it's an old book. I think it's okay. Yes. So he is, as as Karen pointed out, the monster is is more than just Victor's creation. It's it is this mythological kind of primeval distortion and um, division, and also the converging point at the same time. It's a very he's a very profound creation in literature. I have a question now that you guys have prompted for me. Um, in all of this, everything that we've had talked about today is leading up to this. So is, is the monster kind of uh, pure language? He speaks with this eloquence. Does he lie? Jo- Josh, Josh is I was kind wondering of tra- tracking that. the lies. Good yeah. Question. Does he ever lie or is he, is he really the closest we come to sort of pure, pure language used purely? I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Um, is the monster, um, does the monster use pure language? Well, if we're if we're not um, going to be if we're not going to be antsy about spoiler alerts and that sort of thing, uh, I will I will bring up that in the 1831 edition, at the end, when Victor finds out that Robert Walton has been keeping notes on the stories that he's told in Robert's cabin night by night. Robert surrenders his notes to Victor, who then meticulously goes over them. He in this version he does them. too. Yes, yes. <laughs> does he? Yes, okay, yes. Okay. <laughs> That's a good so, <laughs> so does is the monster hmm. uh, an example of pure language? No, because Victor gets final say on oh. what the monster says too. So um, it might be that in telling in Victor's telling Robert the whole story, he lets himself go and and lets out a few things that uh, that he might not have said if he weren't keeping an eye on posterity. But in the end, we find that um, that 
Victor gets final cut. Uh, he gets that uh, veto power. Well, yeah, like so, so Monster could be pure yeah. language, but Victor edits him. And by a, right. biographically, you know, the Shelleys and the Godwins kept, I think this may have come up earlier. Uh, they kept these, uh, they kept journals and diaries that with, I mean, not really detailed entries. I mean, not like, wordy entries but they detailed everything including like their sex lives um their appointments their museum visits um and uh some of what mary shelley wrote in her journals was actually written by percy I so it's just interesting this whole editing and writing over things so yeah right. go, go ahead david well, I, I ran across i was at a bookstore recently and i ran across an edition where it was prioritizing the Percy Shelley edited version of this. So then it was saying it was doing one was the version that he had with his notes and revisions. And one was her original version that was just pure Mary Shelley. And the idea was to create a distinction between the two. And I was having a hard time figuring out if one of them was meant to be 1818 and one of them was meant to be 1831 or one was even earlier or something like that. The, yeah, the 1818 all version has a lot. What we're reading has a lot of Percy's edits. But it's so it's interesting to think that. So, did he just was he domineering and he just said, Oh, you're not, you know, I'm the literary genius, so you should probably let me add my touch. That's, you know, that's, my that's mansplain yeah. that your seems, novel. That to seems you. to be it. <laughs> I, or, that would be my guess. <laughs> so, but it, so, but was there also the factor that she couldn't like to get it published? She was too young. She was a woman. All these different things. He was famous. Was there? Was that part of it as well? That there was a no. Commercial... I think he was just mansplaining her own novel to her. But okay. but <laughs> but the more sympathetic version. I mean, they they lived in a very. I mean, even the origins of the story. It was a very collaborative group. So mm. she, even if she submitted to his editing, it wasn't like. I mean, that was just something that they all did with the, with one another in their mm. writing creative process, but. You know, or maybe it could be a little, could have been a little Stockholm syndrome going on there. Huh. Well, that that seems like that opens up a, a whole new line of conversation about Mary Shelley. <laughs> it it strikes me though, uh, as you were talking a minute ago, Josh, that that there's such a difference between between the sort of approach that like the the motivations behind the the, the learning that we got from. Victor Frankenstein when he was younger because at first he's he's doing he's reading and he's reading and reading and he has these you know he seems to have these uh virtuous reasons for wanting to learn and then as he he keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going his his motivations seem to be being twisted and they seem to be uh reorienting themselves towards darker purposes if you will and ultimately that leads to him you know, creating his ultimate goal is to, to, to sort of, you know, reorder nature. And that's runs very counter, you know, as you read it, it feels like a very different experience than what we're getting as we read about the creature's desires, because he does seem to have, he, he has like a childlike wonder, a childlike desire for, for, uh, for learning um, because it's about connection and it's about, uh, he, he doesn't have notions of virtue. Or he doesn't have grand notions of recreating life or anything like that. Is is that in a way Shelley's uh is she making a statement about different kinds of learning, different kinds of approaches to learning, different kinds of uh per, you know, ends to learning? Um and part of me, I couldn't help but wonder if she's in some ways like 
subtly judging her own husband <laughs> for his the maybe the way he was approaching it? Or do you think that she's trying to just create two characters that it creates an opposition, it creates a conflict, you know, thematically within the within the nature of these two characters, it creates a you know a a, a difference that can cause them to run up against each other. Have you have you guys any of you thought about that at all? Yeah, I mean, I think about that all the time in reading this novel, that there's there's all these doubles in the novel to Victor, as we've talked about before, and one of them is the monster. And the, uh, the at the beginning of the novel, there's a very intense exploration of, of Victor's education. And in this section, we get, uh, so far in our reading, we have half of an exploration of the monster's education um and we're soon to get the other half and it's family and books and that's exactly what victor's education was um family and books just in a very different way um and i find the contrast fascinating as david's pointing out because you have victor who had who was embedded within a uh, society, his family, and was given intentionally cultivated. His mind was intentionally cultivated, and he really didn't love virtue, like ever. He never talks about loving virtue or wanting to be good. And then you have the monster who is divorced from any meaningful human connection. Everything, he's a voyeur on all of it. Everything is stolen moments. Everything is taken. He has to take everything. Nothing is given to him. And in his education, he does love. Virtue. Well, couldn't you argue that he actually... At first. Couldn't you argue he actually has more rightly ordered human connection than the doctor does? Even though he's a voyeur, he's got, he's got, he's got at least a... He's got connection to real human, human relationship. Well, he sees... He's exactly, a model. He observes... He observes it. it it's, it's that's exactly right. He has models for it, but he doesn't. He's not loved. Right. There's he 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 doesn't have the connection, but he's observing a healthy right. connection. And so, to your point, I do absolutely think that um, that Mary Shelley is exploring that and contrasting those two educations and their results. Josh, you have you write in some of your books and on some of your blog posts uh, about how sometimes you don't want to leave students to their own devices <laughs> as far as, you know, as far as getting a sense of why students might want to learn things. Uh, so I, I was thinking about you. I like to describe it. I've never said this to you before. Maybe I shouldn't, but I like to describe that as like this like friendly sort of snark in your writings, <laughs> kind of snarky about how how kids sometimes will uh, approach learning because they don't always have the best of intentions. Um, but it seems so... But you talk a lot about how there's this concept of... I don't know if you would put it this way, but you know, this is the role of the teacher, right? To model rightly ordered learning and to be a part of that and to, to, to direct students' direct students' knowledge towards virtue. Um, and it seems like that's what happens, you know, when you when you see the monster in the, you know, looking through the little slot at the family. What he's witnessing is, <clears throat> you know, he's witnessing, you know, the old man and these children have who have a loving relationship with one another. And then he sees, you know, he even sees, um, what's his name? The guy he's teaching English to the, what the what they what they what does he call the Arab or something like that? What's the what's the the, the young guy's name? 
Felix, yes. yeah, Felix, he's Felix teaching English, mm-hmm. and so there's a there's a rightly ordered relationship there. But then, as you've mentioned multiple times, Josh, we have for Frankenstein, his own father basically abandoned. You know, doesn't even give him. He doesn't talk to him at That's all. Right. He's not involved at all in his learning. Um, and so it seems like that model is the essential. The the model that they each have is the is one of the the things that leads to the essential differences between them and the way they think about about learning and virtue. Yeah. Um, Agreed. But on that point, um, if we could look at, if we could look at one line in particular, yeah, from of course, reading that, that a lot of our comments have kind of turned on. Um, this is always a line that I spend a good deal of time on when I'm teaching the book and I come to it. And uh, which chapter? And then in the Norton Critical edition, it's on page 66. This is volume two, chapter two. And this is the end of one of the monster's speeches. He says, um, everywhere I see bliss from which I alone am irrevocably excluded. I was benevolent and good. Misery made me a fiend. Make me happy and I shall again be virtuous. And what I often do when I get to this line, make me happy and I again shall be virtuous, is I ask students to explain the line in such a way that proves it true, but also a way that proves it false. Because I don't think that this claim is uncomplicatedly true. I think there's a very certain way in which it's true and another way in which it's ludicrous. Um, because uh, the monster seems to have disregarded certain lessons from Paradise Lost when he says this. Uh, Namely, that Adam and Eve were created good, that Adam was quite literally given a spouse who was made for him, and he discovered misery from such a condition. Um, He was happy first. Yeah, he is happy first. In Paradise Lost. And he chooses misery. He chooses Mm -hmm. what's he chooses the lesser good over the greater good, but he does so not because he has a sin nature, uh, original sin. I mean, regardless of what you think of, of sin nature or inherited sin, Adam has no sin nature when he sins. <laughs> Thus, if you could return the world to a sort of terrestrial paradise, there's nothing to say we wouldn't do it all again the same way. Uh, man is created good. He's created with everything he needs. And he chooses sin nonetheless, not because he's conditioned that way, not because circumstances incline him that way, but he does so of his own free will. He chooses evil. And I think in that sense, this line is entirely false. But at the same time, there's a way of understanding it, um, which gives it some credence. Like, is it I think. It's particular to the monster's experience? What particular to the monster's experience or anyone's experience? Make me happy and I shall again be virtuous. Um, which is, I mean, the way, there's, the other way of taking it might be um, that people often become as they are treated. Uh, and if, you know, if you tell some little child every day of their whole life that they're ugly, they will quit trying to be beautiful. They will quit caring about their appearance because they think they're fated to, to be ugly or that it's unavoidable. Um, but uh, I think it's, uh, I'll borrow Peter Lightheart's language from um, Brightest Heaven of Invention, 
when he talks about uh, Kate in The Taming of the Shrew being um, spoken into a beautiful and virtuous woman, um, that there's a world of words or like a door of words created for her to walk through. And that if someone would just treat her well, she would do well too. So hmm. I'm, I've always been of two minds on this line. I, I, I understand what's meant here and that there's this whole um, world of, of, you know, self-sacrificial love that the monster needs to be the recipient of in order to pass it on. He needs to be a part of a tradition of love in order to give it to anyone. But at the same time, there's another way of reading the line, which is, um, I can't be good until you give me what I want, which is a very dangerous thing to say. And it, that line seems to, I mean, he never gets this woman, but it seems to suggest a very troubled relationship would exist between he and the woman that is going to make him good simply by existing. Uh, it's, it's poor grounds for a marriage for a man to say, I can't be good until I have you. Uh, but that is, that's the, what the monster says here. It's the kind of bargains we're always making though, right? But I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, I can't be good. I can't be happy until I have this thing. Right. Yeah. But then you get the thing and you don't want it anymore or it disappoints you or you become enslaved to it or, or you think you're going to be more persistent in your pursuit of virtue or goodness or something. If you have some yeah. tool or, you know, you get a new Bible. You'll read it more if you get a new one. <laughs> <laughs> so turns, I, can, turns out that's not so not so uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I can pick up on that, there was a passage that I wanted to look at that's right yeah. near this one, and it yeah. and it actually illustrates, you know, the uh, one of the uh, interpretations that Josh talks about um, here, and that is same chapter. Yeah, same chapter. So it's they are the first words that Frankenstein speaks to his um, creation. So it's a few paragraphs above where Josh just read. Uh, when the monster approaches him, I mean, there's a wonderful description of his horrible appearance. And uh, once the monster is near, Frankenstein says, Devil, I exclaim, do you dare approach me and do... And do not you fear the fierce vengeance of my arm wreaked on your miserable head? Be gone, vile insect, or rather stay that I may trample you to dust and oh, that I could with the extinction of your miserable existence restore those victims whom you have so diabolically murdered. Now, of course, uh, uh, Frankenstein's anger and rejection of the monster is justifiable here because of the murders he's committed. But those words be gone, vile insect. I mean, here, so here we've talked about this, you know, throughout this episode, here is the creator calling his creation a vile insect. Um, now I haven't in my research, I haven't, you know, I don't know how uh, well known, uh, you know, Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon would have been uh, to to Mary Shelley, but that but Edwards' sermon, um, "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," was I mean that didn't occur in a vacuum or in isolation. I mean that's sort of a, uh, a it's a common doctrine, Calvinist doctrine about the state of man, the human condition, um, and who 
we as human beings are um, in comparison to God. In fact, you can't, I defy you to go on Twitter today uh, and not find a discussion about this very issue about, you know, who we are uh, to God and our wretched condition and lots of debates about it. Um, and, and the, and the alliances really today reflect the ones here with the romantics, liberals, progressives kind of rejecting any God who would see his creation this way. Um, and others pointing to, you know, some clear scriptural support, um, for this idea. Anyway, all this to say, uh, we have alluded a few times to this idea of, of the role that the creator has uh, in creation and then what happens when he rejects his creation and or treats his creation this way. Um, and here we have it, you know, be gone, vile insect. I mean, what are the theological implications for a conception of God or a God or a creator who views his creation this way? That's kind okay. of the big question. That's, that's great. I, I've never thought of the connection between, or the potential connection between um, Jonathan Edwards and that particular statement. I'm wondering, I want you to find out. Please put it in your annotated <laughs> edition. All right. I'm, I will note to look out into it. There's probably a journal article somewhere on it. <laughs> but I think that's a, a very big and even more moving forward from this point in the novel that the idea of of the creator responding to his creation with rejection and what that does to the creation mm -hmm. is very important from here on out, like everything from here on out in the novel. And I, I think that there's, you know, our listeners and David will recognize another one of my pet theories, which is that literature explores the division between duty and desire. All literature does in some way explore that, that, that we were created with our, our duty and our desire, our virtue and our happiness were connected in the garden of Eden. Mm. Like originally that was our state as Josh pointed out, that was the human condition originally. And with the fall in the garden of Eden, of Eden, happiness and virtue, duty and desire are profoundly divided. And the human pilgrimage is to try to unite those things. Um, and, and that I think is explored very much in this novel, which goes again to the purpose of an education as we've been talking about, can those things be knit back together by learning? Um, or, and, and what is our responsibility with what we know to what we do to how we feel? Um, mm. And those, those things are, can, are explored with all of the main characters of this novel, but now we get to see it in the monster. Well, the monster even brings this topic up in his response to what Karen was reading, which, and I find this whole, this moment, this, this kind of next moment here to be like, like if I, if you put it on film, it'd have to be something like out of a Billy Wilder movie. It'd have to be something mm -hmm. that's both tragic, like both dark and funny at the same time, because, you know, his response is to, uh, to what the Dr. Frankenstein says. Is he's, it says, I expected this reception, said mm -hmm. the demon. All men hate the wretched. How then must I be hated, who am miserable beyond all living things? Yet you, my creator, detest and spurn me, thy creature, to whom thou art bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. You purpose to kill me. How dare you sport thus with life? Do your duty towards me, and I will do mine towards you and the rest of mankind. If you will comply with my conditions, I will leave them and you at peace. 
but if you refuse, I will glut the maw of death until it be satiated with the blood of your remaining friends. And then Frankenstein, abhorred monster, fiend that thou art, the tortures of hell are too mild a vengeance for thy crimes. Wretched devil, you approach me with your creation. Come on then, that I may extinguish the spark which I so negligently bestowed. And then he says, my rage was without bounds. I sprang on him, impelled by all the feelings which can can arm one being against the existence of another. He easily eluded me. And then he continues on. And there's something like, something so pathetic about Frankenstein that, you know, if you were filming it and you had this moment where they're arguing and then Frankenstein springs at him and this monster's much bigger than he is. And he's, you know, like you, like two kids on the playground where the little kid thinks he's way tougher than the big kid or something. And, you know, it's got that effect where he thinks he's going to win and all the, all the monster has to do is like sidestep him. And there's something so pathetic about Frankenstein's approach here. And it's the, it's the monster who says, do your duty towards me and I will do mine. He's the one that's got the notion of duty on the mind uh, in a way that Frankenstein doesn't, who's so, he's really bound up by fear and rage and he's letting, he lets it kind of win the, win the day. But the monster is the one that's, uh, you know, he, he recognizes that there, there, there's like a tie that binds them like, like, you know, Gollum in the ring or something <laughs> or Frodo in Gollum or something like that. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a sort of con- a connection that they can't, that, 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 uh, what does he say? They're, they're bound by ties only dissoluble by the annihilation of one of us. So maybe the Frodo in the ring thing is not quite right, but you know what I'm getting at. <laughs> uh, it's, but so you're talking about duty there. And so he, he, the monster of all creatures is the one that recognizes the necessity of duty. Right. And no one has ever done their duty to him. And the only person who actually has a duty to him at this point is Victor Frankenstein. So how does the monster have this sense of duty then? Like, where does this come from? Because when I was thinking about the notion of whether I was surprised about his language, I was surprised at his language in a way. But I also recognize that, as Karen said, this is not meant to be realism. What throws me a little bit when thinking about this is how does he have this sense of duty and how does he have the sense of virtue? And so, Josh, would you say then that that goes back to he understands duty, he understands virtue, he understands the, the rightly the right order of these things because of reading the ancient paradise lost and so forth. Yeah. He understands them to some extent. He understands them to a, to an admirable extent. Although there are also, uh, I mean, aspects of the monsters uh, approach to justice and vengeance, which are straight up diabolical. They are devilish as, as the monster himself admits that in reading Paradise Lost, he found himself far more sympathetic towards the devil. Uh, and in the speech that he gives here, uh, in this encounter with Victor, um, uh, he says, I will keep no terms with my enemy. I am miserable. They shall share my wretchedness. Hmm. Uh, and this is, I mean, this is unexcusable. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, vengeance and hatred right here. So, um, uh, granted, the monster is very eloquent, and he seems to have a far better grasp of what the meaning of life is uh, and, and concepts of duty and so forth. Um, hmm. But we should not oversell the monster's virtue, uh, which uh, I sometimes find my students doing towards the end of the novel as their hatred for Victor grows and grows. Uh, they often kind of reflexively defend the monster uh, 
to a degree that the monster really has not earned. Um, and we see shades of that early on, um, where the, the monster, uh, like Victor in his youth, has um, sudden fits of violence, uh, sudden violent tempers, um, just as Victor describes in his childhood. Uh, and so the, the monster seems to share some of his father's yeah. uh, some of his father's sins, even though the two of them have uh, no real knowledge of each other prior to this moment. If I, I'd like to um, related to this sort of do a cursory skip through chapter three um, of volume two, which is the first part of the monster's story um, before he meets the DeLacy's. And I, I think Shelley does an amazing and beautiful job of kind of recreating um, what it's like to be an, you know, an infant. Uh, so the, so the word infant means without language. Um, and so in the monster's infancy, he's not a tiny baby, but he does have a stage without language. His first sense of himself is, is completely embodied. Um, it is sensory experience. I love some of this description at the beginning of chapter three, um, second sentence, a strange multiplicity of sensations seized me and I saw, felt, heard, and smelt at the same time. And it was indeed a long time before I learned to distinguish between the operations of my various senses. By degrees, I remember a stronger light pressed upon my nerves so that I was obliged to shut my eyes. Darkness then came over me and troubled me, but hardly had I felt this when, by opening my eyes, as I now suppose, the light poured in upon me again. Um, and he talks about all these different sensory impressions and sleeping when it's dark and waking, feeling hunger, and then discovering fire which of course is a mythical uh, momentous mythical event and then being led by his hunger into a village where he is you know first attacked by people so this is a this is just a powerful to me this is a realistic description of what this mm. infant monster um would have gone through and how his personhood is very much an embodied experience um, and his senses lead him to, naturally to the things that he needs um, and but but he is betrayed by them and, and and learns you know that he cannot have his physical needs net because of his um, physical appearance so I, I'm not sure where I'm going with that but the, so I'll just stop there but I just love I love this part of the story i have a my daughter is 18 months old and she's trying to speak you know she's at that stage where she can't really put many of the words together but you know she's trying to articulate things and she's so frustrated mm, <laughs> yeah. it, ends up just, it ends up just you know being you know some kind of you know guttural <laughs> mm. you know she tries to say a couple words and tries to express it and we just kind of look at her like you know she's a she's a dog <laughs> which is so interesting because it is i again I, I don't have children i'm not a child development specialist but i understand that that they actually it, it's it's a physical uh, uh, lag behind the mental ability right she has these concepts and words in her mind but physically can't express them uh like my friend with cerebral palsy right? you know mm -hmm. that it's 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 a sort of a division between the mental and physical ability um and and yeah it's 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 that 
it reveals that uh, relationship, but also that divide between our physical bodies and our internal sense of self. There's that line where it says, sometimes I tried to imitate the peasant, the pleasant songs of the birds, but was unable. Sometimes I wish mm-hmm. to express my sensations in my own mode, but the uncouth and inarticulate sounds which broke from me frightened me into silence again. And I, uh, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking about you know, one of the big things that my daughter is doing right now is she's making animal sounds, right? She, can't, she can hardly say, she can speak a handful of words. She can say some stuff, um, but you know, it's not speaking really. And... But what she can do is she can do a lot of animal sounds, right? <laughs> and she can, she loves animals. She can do, she can howl like a wolf and she can make, she can wink like a pig and all these different things. And she gets a kick out of it. And there's this expression of, it's like an expression of some sort of communication, some sort of language that she, she seems to be recognizing. Mm-hmm. I was thinking, I was just thinking a lot about how that experience, how much you must long to speak, to communicate with people mm-hmm. around you that are communicating. So in the same way that she watches my wife and I and her older brothers communicate and talk and have be able to actually, you know, articulate things that are we're getting meaning from, she she's gotta recognize that in some in a similar way to what the monster recognizes. Now I don't know what she's actually getting, but you can tell that she'll sit there and look at, you know, look back and forth between people when they're talking and take in the the process of conversation in a really interesting way. Um, and I was thinking about how we kind of never stop doing that. <laughs> you know, like when you, when you listen to someone talk who's more articulate than you, that knows some, about something more than you, mm-hmm. but maybe you want to know about it. It's a mm-hmm. similar process to what my mm-hmm. 18-month-old daughter is doing mm-hmm. when she watches our family have conversation over dinner. And I think that maybe that's why Mary Shelley could... She was able to articulate in the book the experience that you're pointing towards because that's such a human thing that never ne- that doesn't necessarily go mm-hmm. away. I wonder, for example, if she, you know she, she there's the famous story of how she uh, Josh, did you talk about this? How she heard Coleridge as a child. She heard Coleridge in her home. Yeah, when she was only four. Yeah, mm-hmm. so she probably there's a mystery and a you know there's a there's a um, there's probably a that experience is probably mesmerizing. I think maybe is what I'm what I'm getting at, and that probably never left her that that sense of, that sense of awe. Yeah, I I have to say that. The description of the monster's earliest memories um, has often been a been a passage that um, that I rush through when I teach this, and I think some of that might be due to the introduction that all of it's given. And there is this incredible uh, dynamic between the end of chapter two and chapter three. So, so chapter two finishes with the monster saying, I'm going to tell you my story and then I'm going to make a request of you. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to destroy you and all mankind. <laughs> Once I was an innocent child. <laughs> and that's what the beginning of three. Um, and it's a, it's a little jarring uh, because two finishes with this colossal threat, not just of Victor, but of mankind as a species. I will, I will wreck this place where you and your fellow creatures live, if you don't give me what I want. And then he begins the story of his, his innocent, uh, you know, nativity and, and being a toddler and enjoying the world. And, um, and the monster uh, describes himself as, you know, an innocent. And he even takes on the life of these rustic people that he discovers out in the woods. And it, it's fascinating 
that by the time we start hearing about the DeLacy's, we have forgotten the threat that attends this entire story. That behind all the stories uh, of the monsters splitting their firewood, etc., there is this, as Heidi said earlier, there is this request. But the request is attended by this horrific threat. Uh, and so that's kind of underneath everything that the monster describes about his you know, tenderest memories of trying to tweet like a bird and, and all the rest. Um, uh, Makes total sense to me. Kids are always making threats. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, maybe that's true that by the age of like six or seven, a child has figured out that they do have some kind of coercive power over parents. <laughs> I, I can make this trip to the grocery store very difficult for you. It's not me what I want. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think uh, maybe they learned that much earlier than that. Who knows? Um, and uh, you know, I was when I was reading that, I kept thinking about how like. Every terrible dictator started out as a small child with parents who had high hopes. Yes, so true. And, and, and I think that that's a, that's a fact worth pondering over and over again. Um, you mean written, really in relation to the book or just in relation to parenting and teaching? No, in, just in relationship to human nature, hmm. just human beings as a whole. Um, that, uh, yeah, you know, that... Joseph Stalin and Pol Pot, these were once upon a time completely innocent human beings that were loved with great devotion and, you know, up and through a certain age enjoyed the world with a simplicity and innocence of heart. Uh, that's, a, that's both a humbling fact and a terrifying fact as well. And, and I think it's worth ruminating on um, that every person who ultimately commits their life to monstrous evil was once good. And don't you think that's the whole, I mean, that that's one of the whole explorations of the novel is how, like, how does it come to this? How do you get a victor and how yeah. do you get a monster? And, and, yes. and how do you get a, you know, a stage littered with dead bodies. Right. And so that is, right. You pointed out that your students are often sympathetic to the monster. I don't know that I think that's the wrong response, but it's not the whole response, right? That's it doesn't that's not the whole sure. story of the novel. There's no nobody gets let off the hook in this novel. Um and there is monstrosity in in all of them. And and they she goes all the way to the beginning to explore how that comes to be. And, and I think that that's this whole, this section in the middle, I've, I mean, I've, I've read this book with lots and lots of people and almost everybody gets bogged down here. They're like, wait, mm. now we're like at some cottage in the woods and he's reading these books and it's another yes, perspective. Like it, and, and what is the purpose of this part of the novel? What's, you know, I want to know what happens with the monster. Like, and, um, but this is the heart of the book. This book mm -hmm. isn't great without this. <laughs> yeah, there's a sense in which uh, you make a great point that, that the book does ultimately, in going back to the beginning of everyone's life, Victor's life, um, the monster's life, and so forth, 
the book does seem to want to answer the question, where do miserable yeah. people come from? Like if, if they are happy early in life, where do miserable right. people come from? And I, you know, this is a, a question that I think every teacher of virtue ought to ask students in the abstract, maybe in the beginning of the year, you've all met adults that are terrible, miserable people. Don't you wonder how they turned out that way? Don't you wonder how the same creature goes from, you know, being five or six and taking delight in, you know, the squirrels that play in the yard to only being capable of happiness by way of extreme perversion? How does that happen? Um, and, and once you've met someone who's truly miserable, how can you not wonder how they ended up in that state? And how can you not be fearful that they turned out miserable through a series of slow, seemingly insignificant decisions that ultimately began going south in an irrevocable sort of way? And don't you wonder whether you are making such decisions as well? I, th I think this book opens up that kind of, hmm. you know, basic, legitimate human fear that you too could someday turn out to be horribly discontent, miserable, and willing to inflict pain on other people indiscriminately. Or our kids will. <laughs> but for the grace of God type of scenario. But the opposite is true is also, right? Like I, f I find, you know, you read stories of, you know, <laughs> the saints say, or people who are truly great. How to, how there's a mystery. I mean, maybe not a mystery, but there's a, it's, it's, I have a sense of awe at how they became truly good as well. You know, mm -hmm. especially people who did evil things. You look at Paul, for example, St. Paul, you know, he went from being, I'll use the word loosely, but being, doing, doing monstrous things to being, you know, one of the pillars of the church. Mm -hmm. And there's, and there's a certain, I, I wonder if the book is asking the same thing as well, just in a sort of roundabout mm -hmm. way, because we, when we get these characters who are both good and bad, it's not just mirrors of the monsters up against each other, but we get characters who seem to have virtue in this book as well. And, you know, whether it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's hard to tell, you know, at this point in the novel, who we actually trust about who has virtue and so forth, of course, but we've got, you know, it seems like Elizabeth has some virtues. It seems like, you know, the women characters, <laughs> Justine maybe has some sort of virtues that are, that are evidenced. Mm. Um, the dead mother. The dead mother, you know, and, and again, you know, there's questions about who we can trust about all this as well, but how, how, how did those people end up virtuous or, or mm. good? And while the other people did not, you know, it goes both ways for me anyway, there's a sense mm. of, um, because on the one hand, there's this terror that we're going to raise children to be, you know, terrible people <laughs> or make some mistakes or make decisions. You know, you mentioned that we're making decisions that lead to, to us becoming monsters, mm -hmm. but what decisions are we making that also are leading to our children becoming monsters? They're going to have to make their own choices, but we make a lot of choices ourselves that determine the outcomes of their lives. Mm -hmm. are, are there decisions that we can also make that can help them be more virtuous? Um, it would seem that if one is true, the other is true, maybe... Maybe that's a leap, though, in, in logic. I'm not sure. So I have a... Yeah, this is a great, um, fruitful line of discussion because it occurs to me that it's worth thinking about the difference between um, being good and being great. Um, mm. So good, we use virtue synonymously with goodness. Um, but then what does greatness mean? Um, hmm. 
again, there are current applications. We don't need to get into those, but to that word, but, but this is a book in many ways that is about being great, not good. Um, because Walton and Frankenstein want mm. to be great. They want to, you know, explore beyond human limits and, and, and break barriers and do things yeah. that have never been done before. They are be seeking, legends. yes, they are seeking greatness, not goodness. Um, yeah. so anyway, that's just, they're not thought. content with living simple, good lives. Like, mm-hmm. You know, like a monk would be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, yeah, there's a sense, and I need to think about this more, but I, there's one sense in which maybe we think of great as being a better, you know, a, a more of goodness, but it really isn't. I mean, I, I talk about this for a little bit in on reading well about the goodness of good. Um, like good is wonderful and it's good enough often. Um, and so great great in the way that we use it and the way that we mean it most of the time does not just mean more goodness. It means something else. And um, I don't know. I just think that's worth thinking about. I think a lot of literature explores that to your, your point is so good. And it is definitely, it's not great, but it's good. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Both. (laughs) No, no, no. I I just want it to be good. I don't need it to be great. (laughs) Well, I think that that's part of, of the, legacy of the tragic tradition in Western culture mm-hmm. is there so many of the the central characters in tragedies, you know, I read in, in Shakespeare, uh, in Sophocles, like they're they're exploring this idea is of can't is it possible to be a great man or woman, but usually man, and a good one. Mm-hmm. And where does one leave off and the other begin? Can I be both? And which one is better to sacrifice? Mm-hmm. Uh and, you know, of course, in the tragic tradition, they're always going to choose to be great at the expense of goodness, mm. and then they will arrive at their downfall. And, and sometimes and that, in real life, too. Yes, that's true. And there's so there is this moral center within Western literature of it's uh, in choosing greatness over goodness, there's a tragic downfall coming to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that I think we do see for sure in Frankenstein. Um, in particularly in Victor Frankenstein. I mean, you could, you could look at him through the lens of how he is like alike or different to other, you know, great tragic heroes. Um, and I don't think that completely works, but it's in there. But that contrast between goodness and greatness uh, is a big theme, I think, in Western literature. I think so too. I've never thought of it that way, but yeah, I think, yeah. It almost can't help to, to be a great theme given that um, great intellectuals make notoriously lousy husbands. Good point. So oftentimes the cost of greatness is, is unhappiness. I mean, if we put our heads together, I bet we couldn't come up with, you know, more than half a dozen famously happy literary marriages. I mean, marriages of, uh, you know, great writers. I mean, Milton, no. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. Does anyone want to be um, married to, uh, you know, Dostoevsky? Dostoevsky, <laughs> um, Charles, Charles Dickens. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I heard somewhere that um, that James Joyce's marriage was on the happier end of things, uh, but but he's one of the only names I ever hear referenced in terms of 
ha- happily married geniuses. Like there, there's just there's just none. Um, and, do you think I mean, it's true? Back, women, is it just that? a man thing? What about the great women writers? Most of them were single. Single. Yeah, and if you go all the way oh, back to say late antiquity, uh, I mean, all the great theologians, yeah, single as well. Augustine, you know, um, John Chrysostom. I mean, they're all they're all monastic. Um, and as soon as you get the the full light of history shining on modern authors' biographies, it's just acrimonious marriage after. Okay, turn. so there's a egg, there's a uh, chicken and an egg thing I've got to think about here, <laughs> because is it that there's a certain degree of um, aspiration that has to come, that has to kind of envelop you to to be truly great at something like that, to produce truly great work, and that and that that when it envelops you, it pushes other things out of the way, and thus you you tend to abandon those other priorities or, or diminish them unless you have unhappy marriages or is it that is it or is it some combination of that and then people who have happy marriages don't have the need to pursue those sorts of things or or uh happy marriages just they're more moderate and they're so there's just not that drive I mean, what's the what do you think the the uh which is the which, which, which yeah, is which, the yeah, I guess that's the way of asking it. Yeah. <laughs> is there an answer to that question? <laughs> Does it depend on the it's person? It's an interesting question. Like that's a fascinating line of inquiry historically um, and psychologically. So like you look at someone like, let's say like what I also Wendell Berry, cause I, I know him and he's been married for a very long time and seems very happily married and he's happily. produced, he's produced a lot of work, but is it that the, the, the themes that he is pursuing in his work, you know, if he was, if he had gone on a different path theme wise, I mean, is, or is it just that he had the right persona? Like is the, he had the right temperament to be happily married and also produce good work. Well, he produces good work. It's not great, I would say. Yeah. yeah, that's fair. We'll see if it's we'll see if the work is still being read a hundred years after he dies. Then mm-hmm. I think it could be mm-hmm. named great. But I mean, the man is still alive. Uh, you know, yeah, we can't, no, that's fair. Can't make him a saint yet. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. We probably should start thinking about wrapping this up. But Heidi wants to say something. Oh, I'm so I'm I'm really interested in this question. Um, about the eccentric genius, uh, in especially in the Romantic tradition, uh, that was part of the Romantic ideals, like the tormented artist who's separate from society, who sees something that ordinary people don't see, and uh, and has to be this lone wolf writing verses whilst taking hundred mile walking tours through the moors on a windy day. <laughs> so there's, there, there is this idealization of um, eccentricity and, and torment within the romantic ideal and the romantic tradition. Um, so like and, they would give themselves over to that because there was an ideal in it, you think? Yeah, there is, there is a bit of that within the, Romantic tradition, and 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 maybe it's because they saw these things in the tradition. You know, it's like, well, I guess I better be unhappy um, if I want to be a great poet um, and sit and talk with Coleridge and about the depths of despair. I don't know, but there's 
there, there is that within this time period. And Mary Shelley is married to one of them and was raised by those kinds of people. And, and she does seem to be exploring that in this novel. Um, this, everything so dark is David Boyd. There's no kind of, um, uh, counteraction to the, to the unhappiness in the novel. The closest thing we get is the DeLacy's in the middle, but even their story has its tragedy to it. So, um, I, I am really curious about this idea of the eccentric genius and where are the centric geniuses, right? In the tradition. And, <laughs> um, and, and Wendell Berry is a great example of that potential. So I'm totally for that. I'd like to be a happy person and a great writer. So I'm going to go for that. <clears throat> hmm. But if I had to pick, I should probably pick being good. It's Achilles, right? Glory or home all the time. Yeah, now I'm going to be trying to like, like <laughs> a lot of people are, I, 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 probably a lot of people who have uh, delusions of grandeur and happiness are feeling very discouraged about, about their future right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well we should probably wrap this up do any of you uh, have any final thoughts Karen anything you want to add and then and anything you think people should look look forward to in this next section yeah I would just say when as we delve uh, into the middle of the story of the DeLacy's um, you know you know, Heidi brought up how so many uh, readers see this as a distraction or don't know what's going on but I want to echo what she said this is the center of the story so look for the ways in which this story parallels uh, or at least illuminates the the larger story around it because there because it's there for a reason and it helps us to understand the outer frames of the story of Victor and uh, the monster mm. Yeah, I'm glad you guys brought up the story within the story within the story within the story. <laughs> I have a, I have a, I think I had a, I think it was a college professor who used to talk about these st- stories that had the structure, and he would say that uh, it's like cutting an onion. The further the deeper you get into the onion, the more likely you are to start crying. <laughs> <laughs> and I think what he was getting at was after a while it gets a little bit painful, and so Heidi was talking about how people get bogged down. It's not necessarily that there's so much pathos that you start crying. But then you start getting discouraged. You know, the process of cutting the onion after a while it gets a little bit, uh, a little bit more fraught. <laughs> and uh, the same with as you get to the middle of uh, the middle of a, you know, this many layers. After a while, you can get bogged down. So, yeah, that's uh, Heidi. What about you? Oh, I have no final thoughts. I've said all the things. Yeah, sure. Okay, Josh, you had your you had your chance and you gave it up. Josh, your turn. Um. No, wait, I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, when we get to the end of the monster's time in the next week's reading, when we get to the end of the monster's time at the, uh, at the DeLacy's cottage, we'll see parallels to moments in Victor's life as well. Um, the kind of physical or the kind of, you know, just plotted icons of Victor's moment of turning and the monster's moment of turning are strikingly similar if you were to imagine the whole thing unfolding as a motion picture there's a number of images that could be repeated over and over again um the delacy's cottage and and victor's tree um but uh all the characters in this novel seem on the verge of just collapsing into one another they seem to move in and out of one another the way that you know um you know shadows seem to converge uh, together when you remove a light source or something like that 
um, it becomes harder and harder to tell the characters apart from one another as we as we go further. Mm. Um, and I would encourage readers to ask why this is the case, why the characters slowly begin to um, <clears throat> bleed into one uh, the further we get into the story. It's because it's all actually happening in a snow globe in a kid's imagination. Whoa. No spoilers! <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. Hey, it's an old <laughs> book. Uh, one of the questions that Sam sent along that I didn't bring up this week is actually related to uh, the way people represent this story in movies and in pop culture. So I'll have to save that for the future, but that might be interesting to discuss. Um, he particularly was interested in the idea of the creation of the monster with lightning and things like that that, that gets used and how the monster gets represented. So that's uh, probably something we should uh, keep an eye on as we, as we uh, move forward in future discussions. So, well, uh, all right. Chance to plug something before we go. Josh, you're up first. We'll go in reverse order. What do you want to plug? I want to plug Blasphemers, my collection yep. of short fiction still available on Amazon. All right. Heidi. 30 poems. Oh, and I am doing an interview this afternoon. Look for it soon on the Forma podcast with Dale Grote, who translated the Acts of the Apostles, the Book of Acts, into Latin, which is interesting, and it's being released by the Circe Institute. It's a and Latin so I have reader, lots of yeah. questions. I have lots of questions about why Latin for the Book of Acts, and I'm looking forward to exploring that. So um, our listeners can listen to that and pick that one up too. Karen? Um, I will plug Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, my new employer, where I will begin teaching this fall. So if you're looking for an undergrad or seminary education, um, check us out. I'll be there. <laughs> when's, your, when's your first day, official first day? July 1st. Oh, wow. Oh, so well, I mean, you know, contract. Tomorrow? Right. Yeah, yeah. Tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow or to yeah, depending on when you post. Well, yeah, this. I guess so, today yeah, yeah, when yeah, it goes yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean I don't start teaching until the fall, but um, I'm officially an employee on July first. And what are you teaching this fall? I'm teaching two courses in world literature. Okay. Yeah. One one for for non majors and another for majors. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Yes. And which book that you're teaching in those two courses are you most dreading teaching? <laughs> I'm still finalizing the list. So maybe, <laughs> so maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so maybe we'll, we'll talk about that later. Yeah. Okay. None, right. none yet. Yes. Okay. None yet. All right. Well, thanks to uh, all four, all three of you for joining me. Uh, I had four people on my screen here. So, you know, I guess I'm thanking myself too, but thanks you to, <laughs> for, for joining me on the conversation and to everyone who's been listening. Don't forget you can join the conversation on Instagram, Facebook, via email, uh, all that's listed in the show notes. And uh, of course at the top of the show as well. So Thanks to uh, thanks to everyone for supporting the show via your your rates and your reviews and even over on Patreon financially. And with that, for Joshua Gibbs, for Karen Swallow Pryor, and for Heidi White, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading.